Well, hello, Brad fans. Welcome back. I have another great conversation here for you, which started because I saw some stuff online concerning ticks and Lyme disease, mainly that some folks out there were claiming, with dubious evidence, I would say, that Lyme disease might have been a bioweapon that got out of the lab bioweapon created by the U.S. government that got out of the lab. When I was looking at some of this stuff, some of the stuff I saw on Twitter, I saw an old friend, Brian Heron, tweeting about this and basically calling nonsense on some of this stuff. And so I decided to get him on the podcast. He is a veterinary parasitologist at the Kansas State University, at Kansas State University. Um, He's an old friend. We met back when I was doing parasite research. We met at conferences. He's a great guy. We had a really good chat about sort of our mutual um, interest, passion, whatever you want to call it, uh, of parasites, namely ticks. So I don't know a whole lot about ticks. It wasn't my area of research, but I was really enjoyed um, speaking with Brian. We talked about ticks, Lyme disease. You may have heard about the disease uh, transmitted by ticks that gives people a meat allergy. We touch on that. We also touch on his uh, how he deals with the occasional um, incidences of delusional parasitosis that he comes across. So these are people that are believe they have a parasite or their home is infested or something like this, and usually they've been you know brushed aside by a number of medical. Uh, professionals and so they end up finding Brian at the diagnostic lab in Kansas State at Kansas State and they're sending him emails um, things like this just wanting someone to talk to about what they think might be a parasite infection and stuff so he had some really really thoughtful um, answers in terms of you know how do we deal with this people and what it means uh, when medical professionals maybe aren't giving people the attention they want um, kind of speaks to some underlying issues, but it was a really, really good, good chat. And uh, Brian's an incredibly thoughtful um, and compassionate guy. Uh, we also spoke a little bit about teaching the next generation of veterinary students. And again, he had some really great uh, thoughts and perspectives on just sort of being a good person and, and how do you how do we impart some some traits and some things in the next generation that that we want. So yeah check this one out it's really really great i want to thank brian uh again uh for coming on the show and it was just really great to catch up with him before we get to the freak motif bringing us in with some music remember to check out featherposter.com if you are in need of a poster a conference poster a research poster for your next big meeting Check out featherposter.com to get that poster printed on high-quality canvas. This will make it so easy to travel with. You can basically fold it up and put it in a shirt pocket. Um, It's super uh, high-quality canvas. The images will look great. Everything that you provide in your PDF to featherposter.com will end up on the poster. Ditch the tube. You don't have to carry around that stupid tube and struggle with getting on airlines and stuff. It's a great way to present your research. Um, And if you use the promo code 2BRAD, T-W-O-B-R-A-D, at featherposter.com at checkout, you will get $10 off. 
they ship in Canada, possibly North America. I have to double check on that, but check out feathereddopeposter.com to, um, to just take a look and see uh, if it's something you want to do. I highly recommend it. It's great for your next conference or any poster needs that you may have. Thanks again to Simon for reaching out with that, the founder of featherposter.com. Here is the freak motif bringing us in, and then my conversation with Dr. Brian Heron, all about ticks. I don't know, this is a good, as good a place as any to really start because this is how we met too, right? Was at the AAVP meetings back when I was still doing research. Um, but you attended there as like, cause, correct me if I'm wrong, but your background is as a vet and as a researcher? Yeah, I started going to the Parasit meeting when I was in vet school. I was just working on a few small projects with Dr. Little but, you know, kind of morphed that into doing a PhD at the same time. So um, I kind of did a dual or split DVM PhD. Right. And so your focus was always parasitology. You were always kind of interested in that as well, right? Well, actually, I thought I wanted to be an anatomic pathologist. But when I looked at getting a PhD kind of in that area, it was a lot of reading cancer slides and looking Ugh. at looking at you know markers and and stains and stuff and just reading a bunch of cancer slides and I thought well what if I get a PhD in something I'm really interested in and then I can go do an anatomic pathology resident and I won't have to deal with someone's pre cookie cutter PhD and then right. I joined the lab uh, started working on ticks and tick-borne diseases and then just thought, you know what, I really actually hate looking at cancer slides, so maybe I just won't ever do that again and kind of dropped the idea that I was going to be an anatomic pathologist. <laughs> All right, well, so then you found your calling in the in the tick-borne diseases. Yeah, I you know, it's a really complex and, and cool world. There's tons of questions to ask and, um, you know, I think there's a lot of fun research to be done so this was one of the reasons that like you know besides you know us getting a chance to catch up because it has been a few a few years uh since i stopped going to the to the conferences and stuff i still see all the whatsapp messages flying around when you guys are all there and it does make me a little jealous but anyway uh one of the reasons uh yeah i reached out was because you had a great twitter thread about Lyme disease and ticks. And I think that this is a topic that I always, you know, it always comes up in science journal, like uh, magazines and stuff like this, or I see it on Twitter and whatnot, you know, Lyme disease and people saying it's one thing or that it's overblown or that it's this or that. And it seems like there's a ton of misinformation out there. So why don't you, if you don't mind, Give us the rundown of Lyme disease. This is something that you're, you know, qualified to speak on. So we can get the we can get the the information straight from the straight from the source, and then we can talk about what your Twitter thread was about. Yeah, Lyme disease is a bacterial infection. We know that humans, dogs, and horses um, can be infected. Um, it's an interesting type of bacteria because it's a long spiral-shaped uh, bacteria called a spirochete, um, really similar to um, lepto, uh, if you're 
familiar with other bacteria. And in humans, it tends to migrate around in weird places. It doesn't spend really any time in the blood, but it heads to the joints, um, seems to have some nervous system um, effects in humans. So places where the immune system isn't going to really be able to find it. And that's one of the major problems is it's hiding in immunoprotected sites like the joints or um, nervous system. And then those early manifestations of disease can be pretty low nonspecific. And so we have um, a patient, dog or human, that has just normal lethargy, fever, um, feeling achy, and how do we put Lyme disease up high in that differential list for those patients? And so right. then we start thinking about, do they have a history of tick exposure? So that's the kind of play here is the disease is transmitted by the tick. And in the United States, it's the exodia scapularis or the black-legged tick. Some people call it the deer tick. Um, and there's a, not a lot of people who remember having tick exposure. Right. Because like they might have been bitten, but they didn't even notice. Yeah, and, and and the CDC put out something that was both horrifying and great. It was <laughs> a, a picture of a poppy seed muffin, and then it said, can you find these nymphal black-legged ticks on this poppy seed muffin? Which one of these dots are poppy seeds and which one of these dots are ticks? Hint, there's like nine ticks on this muffin. And it was like completely freaking people out. But it made a really excellent point that the, the younger stages of these ticks are really small. And so if they head up into the hairline or something like that, then it's totally feasible that you may not recognize that at all. So now we have these achy feelings with no history of or no remembrance of tick exposure. And what do you do with that? You know, how do you move down a... a a differential diagnosis pathway with something like that. Right. Like, cause so it's you just general, you know, feeling of blah, right? Yeah. Like you achy, you know, it could be the flu. It could be, you know, a number of things. So that's the real issue then is that there's probably a lot of people. Well, I guess here's my, my other question about it is how do we have any idea what sort of like prevalence Lyme disease has in the U S say, yeah, the CDC has said they get about 30,000 confirmed cases of Lyme disease in humans every year. 30,000. That's way higher than I was expecting. But, and here's the kicker, they estimate that there's probably actually 300,000 cases every year because of misdiagnosis, not going to the hospital, all, all the issues with right. diagnose, diagnosing and treating, you know, infections. And so um, the, the actual number could be even higher, which is horrifying. Yeah. So, but then how many of these cases, like, progress beyond, uh, you know, this general sort of bad feeling? Or just, like, once you get it, are you going to just kind of feel bad forever? That's another one of those really challenging things. And I guess I'll start off by saying that I am a veterinarian and a PhD researcher. 
I'm not a human physician. I have not <laughs> treated any humans. I've not diagnosed any humans. This is but, the qualifier. This yeah. is the qualifier. <laughs> uh-huh. But the bacteria is responsive to antibiotics. So there's a class of antibiotics that are extremely effective against it. And some people get the treatment and they seem to move forward with their life. There seems to be a, another group that the, the treatment goes well, they feel fine, but every now and then they'll wake up on a Saturday morning and it's like, oh man, I'm so achy, I just can't mm, get out of bed this morning. And they may have kind of recurring problems. And then there's the final group that even after treatment, they still continue to have some forms of muscle pain neurologic problems, whatever the the kind of symptoms are that are no, they're not responsive to antibiotics in that there may not be active bacteria in there anymore, but there's some damage that's been done. And we don't know, we don't know what to do at that point, right? right. Because have we have they switched the immune system to instead of attacking the bacteria, it attacks itself. So is this now an immune system problem? We we don't know all of the ways in which it messes with the body. And so there are people that they hurt and I feel very bad for them. And they may want to get more and more rounds of antibiotics and it's likely not helpful. Mm-hmm. What can we do for those those people, those patients at that point? And so that's where we're at now is, you know, the diagnosis can be tricky. And so delaying the diagnosis is problematic and leads to longer term issues. But then even when you treat, someone may still hurt. And then what do we do with a hurting person, you know, mm-hmm. for the rest of their life? And that's the hard part is, we may not even be needing to treat for Lyme anymore. We just need to treat for pain. And, and how do we manage that? Right. Or it could be like inflammation or something like this. There's some kind of tissue damage that's been done. Yeah, exactly. Crazy. Yeah. And I mean, that sucks, especially like, I mean, there's so, and this is one of the things you hear about a lot with Lyme, like horror stories, right? Uh, When I'm looking into this, I obviously here's another qualifier. Twitter's not the best place to <laughs> to do your research, but there's a lot of anecdotal stories out there of um, yeah, people that are just sort of lost, right? Like they're like, I feel this, my doctor doesn't believe me, like all this kind of stuff. And it sounds like it's it's just really tricky to identify and then make sure like that the treatment has worked or that it hasn't caused something else. So. I can see the frustration that would be going on with some of these people. Yeah, and and, and that's a major concern in general is you know removing that empathy and trying to say you, you you're testing negative or I don't think you're, you're going to respond to um, antibiotics any longer. But what can we do to help make your quality of life better? What can, how can we address some of these things just to keep you mobile and moving and up and doing things during the day um, and not seeking out risky treatments and, and scary things, you know, so trying to maintain that bridge where 
they're, they're still seeking sound medical advice. And unfortunately, when you've been shunned or told you're crazy or, or silly or lazy or what whatever it is by doctors, you start to think, well, no one's going to listen to me. And I found this cure-all thing on Twitter that saved someone's li- you know, life, and so I'm going to start doing that too. Then that's where yeah. we get to risky things. And so how do we maintain that empathy or that relationship in which there's still open communication about what's going on? Right, right. Yeah, super tricky. Like, and the numbers that you put out there, like 30, 30, was it 30,000 you said? Yes. Yep. So there is, like, that's scary to me because, like I said, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, you know, scary. I don't know. I'm not super scared of Lyme disease. But, uh, and I don't want to, like, be fear-mongering here <laughs> on this podcast. But, I mean, it's the numbers are higher than I was expecting. Um but there is a reliable diagnostic test then like you can test for Lyme disease and you know and get an answer right yeah um parts of the diagnosis are tricky um because like i said it doesn't spend any time in the blood and so it's not like oh we'll draw some blood and and we'll we'll test that for the actual organism right okay um, a, a lot of the testing does revolve around um, antibodies and mm-hmm. so an, an immune response and then you bring in the whole world of cross-reactive antibodies in that your immune system makes an antibody that recognizes a certain type of bacteria and it may kill or attack you know other bacteria that look or are shaped similar or have the same flagella or the same outer surface protein or, or whatever it is and so then you know were you infected with the true causative agent or were you infected with something else that we don't quite know the pathogenicity of it? So there's a lot of, there's still a lot of tricks with the diagnosis as well. Mm -hmm. I think the CDC has set up a two tiered system with an antibody and a a Western blot um, as their confirmatory testing. And that's what they're going for in canine medicine. So on the veterinary side, we use antibody testing, um, and it's a very species-specific, so it only detects a certain Borrelia, um, certain bacteria. But again, when you're relying on antibody tests, then you're 30 days away from the infection. Right? Mm. You, you have to have that time for the immune system to build those antibodies, and so now we're not diagnosing them five days or, or 14 days after infection, we're diagnosing them 30 days after infection. And so is that too long? Right. Yeah. Like to then start antibiotics, then you might have uh, all the damage might already be done kind of thing. Yes. Damage may be done. Yeah. Crazy. See, yeah, I thought it was going to be more of a situation where it's, yeah, it's like a blood test and then you can screen for the actual bacteria. But now we're going into the, like you said I think most people are familiar with antibodies so you know we can look at that but that's not very specific really in terms of like there's a lot of different bacteria that could cause the same reaction or similar bacteria or something like this so so this is again probably leads to why the numbers are a little we think it's this but it could be as high as this which is slightly concerning exactly yeah 
and and so there there's big pushes all the time to um, improve the diagnostic assays to improve uh, vaccines. Um, so in veterinary medicine, we have vaccines for dogs, and we would consider that a risk-based vaccine, as in um, you would dogs in areas where we know the disease exists or high likelihood outdoor dogs they're spending time you know hunting or playing hiking whatever it is um, mm -hmm. those dogs would be you know good candidates for the vaccine unfortunately on the human side on the equine side we don't have vaccines and so there's a massive push to get um, vaccines out but there's kind of a double-edged sword there because the community that's very vocal about having a vaccine um, may be vocal about how that vaccine comes out. And so the reason why there's not a human vaccine is it was pulled from the market because the company kept getting sued. Hmm. And people were reporting that they would get arthritis-like symptoms, achy joints, whatever it is, post-vaccination. And so they were saying, Basically, I'm getting this similar signs as actually having Lyme disease. And there could have been, and it was pulled in 2001. So before I even started my research stuff, um, there likely was legitimate ones that had reactions to the vaccine or, or did feel bad, or maybe they were already infected and vaccinated and that caused some weird reaction. But what happened was basically everyone, it opened the door for anyone who wanted to sue the company because they were achy. And when you have a courtroom and you say, here's this, um, you know, middle-aged housewife and she loved to hike and now she can barely walk. And then here's this company over here and they, they're making billions of dollars. And the juries were just like, yeah, uh, award award to the you know woman who who's hurting and so the companies yeah. were just getting got sued out of you know the water so there's a scare that if they ever brought a vaccine that would happen again right yeah oh man that's tricky and then that opens up so many you know the huge problems that we're having with vaccine education and stuff right now uh i don't know like i think it's in europe here that i don't know if you saw this but like I think it's like four countries lost their vac measles-free status. Yeah, I, there's um, a a lack of understanding of a lot of things in the mm -hmm. vaccine in the vaccine world, but a big one is herd health, and and when you try to tell humans that you're practicing herd health, they're like, "Well, I'm not a cow. This is the dumbest thing ever." Ever, and you say, "No, this." we as a population are a herd together and there's got to be a certain number of us that are vaccinated to really provide a protective environment for the rest of us who may not be able to handle that vaccine. You know, there's probably a certain number of people that, uh, you know, shouldn't get a vaccine, whether they're too ill already or they ha they're known to have reactions or whatever it is, but the rest of us having being vaccinated provides a protective kind of cover for everyone. And so, you know, it's not, it doesn't take much to lose that protective cover. And then you have outbreaks or, um, 
lose measles free status just because you know half dozen people elected not to be vaccinated Mm -hmm. when we really need you know for certain diseases we need 90 percent of the people to be vaccinated so even dropping down to 85 percent can be devastating right right do you have you actually come across this where it's like the the language being used is the problem like the like the term herd immunity I uh, I've only had that once in in my you know younger rowdier days. I would try to engage <laughs> with with anti-vaxxers on on platforms like Facebook, which you know maybe not the smartest decision. And I found that if I ever said herd health, it it was a really great call for them to be like, exactly, everyone's a sheeple. Everyone's just doing what they're told. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I really s- s- try to stray away from saying herd health just because it really lends into their argument that we're mindless creatures doing what we're told and going through the shoot and being vaccinated right. without without our consent or whatever it is. Right, right. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's an interesting thing, you know, like it just speaks to how much, how much language is important when you're trying to, you know, uh, explain these things. But I mean, I don't, I've t- we've talked about this, you know, a lot on this podcast about what do you do about this kind of situation, and you know, the whole business of science communication or whatever. And I mean, obviously, I don't have any answers. I'm not expecting us to figure it out right now. But you know that it's that's an interesting one that I never really would have never really would have picked up on and and that's the I think that's really the hard part of science communication is that our goal is to distill down very complex things into something that's more manageable mm-hmm. um without losing the essence of all the important factors. And so that can be in itself be really difficult. Um, and then are we still communicating at a level that's appropriate? You know, um, I, I don't want to, uh, what I don't want to do is distill things down or, or even um, kind of dumb things down to a point where they're non-factual and say, Oh, you know, these insects are going to give you this um, bug. And it's like, well, Mm -hmm. no, ticks aren't insects, right? So it's a tick and it's a bacteria and I need to be able to use tick and bacteria. Right. Um, And so there's got to be some common language, but then, you know, there's just these complex issues. You're trying to distill them down and say, we're herd health. Some of us have to be vaccinated. It, the wording throws things off because we've tried to use more common terms. Mm hmm. Well, and it's it's just like I'm, yeah, uh, just kind of chuckling to myself here because it's you. It's always the word like I feel like a lot of times people are when scientists are communicating or attempting to communicate their work or research these broader messages. They, you know, like you said, you want to be able to use certain words, bacteria, uh, you know, arachnid or whatever for ticks, you know, this kind of stuff. And we, I think, we underestimate a lot of times how common some of these words are like people get it like a lot of people get it but then you know it's the one that you would never expect it's the it's using the term herd herd health you know you'd never expect that that would be the one that gets hung up or gets people hung up on it but 
I guess it goes to show, you know, you you learn something by arguing with people on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, I learned what not to do, maybe. <laughs> well, it's exactly it. And I would say, too, it is kind of like, you know, I, I think it's a noble pursuit getting out there into the fray and uh, trying to provide some factual information. I don't know if it does anything, but, you know, and it's probably harmful for your own mental health <laughs> after a while being in some of those Facebook groups or Twitter forums or whatever. But I applaud you, Brian. Good job. Yeah. Well, and I, I guess trying to provide a level of science, but also, you know, figuring out how we can all be talking on the same level because a lot of, um, we'll say, people who have don't want to vaccinate their children, they they feel like they've done a lot of research, but they're still making a really emotional decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so, how do we, how do we as scientists, not dismiss their emotions as well and say, I hear your fears about these vaccines. Right. But here, let's talk about what's what's in them or, or how we give them or, or whatever it is so that you better understand. And I think that's one of the things is some people are just scared and a, a tiny bit of information can go a long way. Um, a little story to that, uh, this spring I had a lady come in and she was pregnant and she found a tick on herself here in Kansas. She thought that she was going to get Lyme disease and she thought that she was going to abort her baby and she was freaked out. Mm -hmm. And she had tried to take the tick to a doctor and, and the public health department and no one would really look at it. And she was super stressed. And I said, sure, I'll take a look at it. And I looked at it and I said, this is a male lone star tick. Um, it does transmit diseases to humans. Um, and you can look at the CDC website on, Ehrlichiosis. I think you found this tick and I think you pulled it off and I'm not that worried. If you start to feel achy or weird in the next two weeks, you should certainly go see your doctor mm -hmm. and talk to, talk to them about that. I'll take pictures of the tick today. I'll, I'll write a little thing about it. I'll send you the CDC link. But I think your major problem currently is you haven't slept good in two days because you've been stressed <laughs> out about this. And, and the response when with something like that, where there's some information given, um, there's an acknowledgement of that stress level or emotional feeling, and then, but still being very factual. Right. It, I even said this tick does transmit diseases to humans, but the the scare level had gone down because now she was informed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of where my interest in communication is, is acknowledging feelings, also being very factual so that informed people, they can be worried about risks and say, man, you know, ticks and tick-borne diseases, they can be bad. Maybe we should put some tick preventives on before we go hiking. That level of scared. Maybe after we hike, we look for ticks on our bodies. That level of scared, but not supremely staying up 
all night worrying about ticks and tick-borne diseases scared. And so a little bit of information, I think, can help with that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's a really great point, is that it's like acknowledging the the emotion behind these decisions and, you know, it's fear, right? And then what's a, what's a good remedy for fear of the unknown or fear of something? You know, like, well, getting that information, understanding what actually the risks are. That's, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And you kind of feel for someone that's, you've, you know, gone through the whole medical process and no one's listening and it takes, you know, they're coming to you, like, and, you know, just like you said, you're not a clinician, you're not a physician, you know, you're a tick expert, so it's a good thing that she found you, but it's like, to, for it to get to that point, I think that also kind of speaks a bit to a failure on the, the medical system sometimes from, you know, I mean, I know they're busy and like physicians can be swamped with all sorts of stuff and people are always coming into them, I'm sure, being like, I got this crazy thing, I I for sure have, you know, this or whatever, but, you know, at the end of the day, that's their job. Yeah, and and I know that when people find my name or or seek me out, that I'm not first on the list. I'm, yeah, I'm exactly. An, I'm I'm a I'm a nobody parasitologist in the middle of Kansas, just kind of doing my thing. And so, if if they've gotten to me, then they've talked to multiple people and they didn't get something from that interaction. And so mm-hmm. my, my goal is to maybe provide what was missing, which is just a little bit of listening, some factual, good information, and then kind of a, a closure, right. hopefully. Or at least like a direction to go, right? Like go to this website, you know, this is where you can read up on stuff. But I think that's your, your, your dead on that. It's like, they just want somebody to listen. Yeah. They want somebody to take them seriously and having, you know, a professional in this area acknowledge that, yes, you're not crazy for being concerned about ticks. You should be concerned about ticks, but how concerned? Let me, you know, bring you down or walk you back from a ledge and be concerned. Yes ready to, you know, not sleep, you know, not sleeping for seven days because you're so worried, not so much. Yeah. And, and I took a, a K-State had a course that was like mental first aid. Um, and I really liked how they set it up. They said, basically, if you're Red Cross CPR certified or first aid certified, you should be also mental health first aid certified in that, mm. You're not trying to provide any services. If you're doing first aid, you're doing CPR. You're just trying to keep that person going to the point where you can get them to the hands of trained professionals. Right. And and one of the things that the instructor said was mental illness is basically when your thoughts or feelings, whatever it is, cause you to significant make significant deviations or changes in your life. And so, I mean, stress is a big one. You're not sleeping for three days because you're stressed out. You likely need to talk to someone about that. And you're not crazy. You know, you're not wacko or whatever it is. A lot of the emails I get her say, first off, I'm not crazy, you know, (laughs) but, but I, but I have parasites in my house and I say, no, I don't, 
I don't think you're crazy, but it's clear to me that the level of stress that this is causing you is is negatively impacting your life. And it's mm-hmm. causing you to make significant changes to your daily routine. Most people don't rub bleach water on their skin, you know, right. and that's unsafe. And so we need to talk about a way to get you that stress level down so that you're not doing unsafe daily practices. And that may include talking to someone with a better skill set than I have uh, on counseling or, or de-escalation. But it's acknowledging, I don't think you're crazy, but this is affecting your life in a negative mm-hmm. way. And we, and we need to, you need to talk to someone about that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, I guess you, it's a tricky situation. I guess, would, would you have ever guessed, like, you know, when you were starting your vet degree or your parasitology degree that you would be fielding these kind of calls from people? You know, they always talk about it and, and joke about it. So I did know they exist. Um, it's delusional parasitosis or Ekbom syndrome. And you hear a lot of people, they're like, do not engage. They are, um, you know, they're just troublemakers. They're going to take up way too much of your time. Your your appointment is research, teaching, diagnostics, not fielding calls from random people about, you know, non-existent parasites. They're just going to keep engaging you. They're going to keep bothering you. It's going to be a massive um, waste of your time. Mm-hmm. And there was a Twitter thread that was pretty similar. Someone said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm new in getting these uh, cases of delusional parasitosis. Anyone have any tips? And there was several people who said, don't engage. It's not worth your time. Um, but mine is, I'm not seeking them out. I'm not trying to, you know, add more things to my day. But I, I rarely have people contact me more than once. And it may be that they can tell that I'm not going to give them an answer they want. Mm-hmm. And I just say, what you've given to me is not an insect, not a parasite, has no features that resemble a parasite. What I would be looking for is X, Y, and Z. Here's maybe a picture of what I would be looking for. And what you submitted is not that. But we need to talk about if I thought my home had uh, fleas, well, I would want to put all my pets on a, a very effective flea preventive. And mm-hmm. so you should speak to your veterinarian about a flea preventive that would work for you. I would vacuum uh, the carpets. I would clean the beddings, dog beddings, couches, what, wherever your dog stays. Um, and it's going to take a few months. Those are practical things that I would do if I thought that my home had fleas. And so you may find that to be helpful. What I don't want this to happen is to escalate to a point where we're unsafely washing your pet every day. It's not good for them. And so we want to keep away from that. Um, And you should really be listening to your personal veterinarian on, on how to handle your animal. And it seems to be this is causing a lot of stress, and so you may also want to talk to someone about that stress. Mm-hmm. And that's really the outline for how I, I deal with some of these, and I never hear from anyone again, and maybe it's because they're like, well, that guy was a jerk. But I just <laughs> want to outline 
factual things, but also understand that they're maybe not thinking super rationally because they're so stressed out about this. And so acknowledging that as well. Right. Delusional parasitosis. That's crazy. So basically this is like, we're talking about people that are like, um, what's the word? Like maybe like a hypochondriac or something like this. You know, they're just, they're getting in touch with you because they're just convinced that, yeah, like they got fleas or something like this. Yeah. And it can be any number of things. Lots of people think they have fleas or mites or something's biting them. Um, but what the statistics show, and you can always get in trouble playing with statistics, is that most of the cases of delusionary parasitosis are middle-aged, um, upper-middle-class uh, white females who have just experienced some sort of traumatic event in their life, a death, a mm. uh, divorce, you know, loss of a, a, a friend or family member, uh, kids leaving the home, whatever it is. And so it just goes into play that there's a lot of um, emotional parts to this that actually need to be addressed. And so not addressing those and just saying, this isn't a parasite, bye, right. uh, sends them to the next person when the next person should actually be someone who is prepared or or trained and capable to talk to them about some of the emotional things as well. Right. Right. And not just another yokel parasite guy like me in the middle of Kansas. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't downplay yourself too much, Brian. I think you're doing a great job out here. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting that like I would, I can see, I can definitely see just from my time in academia and stuff, I can definitely see there being, um, you know, researchers or whatnot that are just like, don't engage, don't engage. They're just going to keep coming back with more questions. Like the, like the ant, like they don't want an answer, right? Like they don't want a resolution, which kind of speaks to some of the emotional stuff that might be going on. It's like, this is a way for them to just like, I don't know, redirect whatever other emotions they're feeling. But I think, I mean, your strategy makes sense, right? It's like, it's again, it's reaching out, listening, so giving them the time of day, not just like shuffling them across, but then also kind of at the end slipping in that. But you should talk to somebody else about, you know, your your stress level or whatever else it is and sort of directing them towards the, the place where they might actually get more more of a resolution. Yeah, I, I, I tried to work with our counseling group um, just to make sure that what I was putting out there was going to be helpful. I, I just didn't want my messages to be harmful and push them further, you know, because giving giving credibility and saying, oh, yeah, wow, okay, you do have parasites, that can be harmful because now they have a, um, a medical professional who's given validity to their what's happening. And so mm-hmm. you have to be careful and you acknowledge and understand what they're feeling, but you cannot, you, you can't feed into it you want to try to direct them in a helpful manner and so right. I, I had our our counseling group look at it just to make sure that what how we were interacting was positive mm-hmm. man that's like you've put some thought into it which is you know yeah really great um 
have you ever had a situation where there was like someone came to you and you were like, oh shit, like this might actually be something. Yeah. Cause a lot of the, the cases, um, they, they read very similarly. And so I'll say, well, this, this, this seems like it's going to be a delusional parasite case. And, um, it was, oh, you know, my husband has ticks in his beard. I was like, oh, okay, well, and they've been there for weeks now. And I think, okay, well, you know, this, this is right down the road of something that, that doesn't, isn't real. Uh-huh. And, um, I said, okay, well, you know, if you can, you know, get them into ethanol and into a, a, a sealed container, then yeah, I'll take a look at this ectoparasite thing. And, um, it was actually, uh, a pubic louse. And oh. we almost, we almost never see them anymore. Especially uh, not on beards. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so then you have those awkward emails where if you do find something, then you have to report it back and say, this is what we found. You should go talk to your doctor about this. Um, yeah. I, I, can't, I can't do anything about that from, from here, you know, yeah. at this point on. <laughs> so sometimes there are, um, but you know they read very similarly. And I think it's the minority that usually are are actual parasites and in the things that I have been sent. Right. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump back to ticks and and get into the like the we won't go in the delusional route. Let's talk about what they actually you know what they actually can transmit. What are things that you know? And let's you know yeah. Let's go to let's now really try to freak people out. <laughs> yeah, uh, ticks are awesome vectors of a lot of things. We we talked about bacterial diseases, um, like Lyme disease, um, like Ehrlichia, but they transmit some viral diseases, and, right. and these are these are in the kind of spooky uh, region because we we really struggle to figure out where they're going to pop up and why they pop up. Um, when when you look at a full microbiome or sequence, everything that's in the tick guts, you know, there's tons of uh, viruses, mm-hmm. and we have no idea what they do at this point. And then all of a sudden, you know, a, a farmer in in Kansas dies of kind of cardiac arrest or whatever, and they find a, a virus associated with it, and it's a tick-borne virus. And so, what where the heck did that come from? The so we can't really predict what the scenario is that makes that virus transmissible or or, or infectious or, or whatever it is, because a lot of people get ticks and we're not dying of the same thing. And so mm-hmm. uh, the other scary thing about those viral diseases are the ones that we have kind of more data on we think they can transmit in a matter of minutes and so when we talk about how long ticks have to be attached some people are like okay if i get them off in the first 24 hours then i'm probably safe and for lyme disease you know there is a, a little bit of a grace period like that but in these viral diseases 15 minutes so i mean if you get a tick at the beginning of your hike and then you check yourself at the end of the hike was that too long and so mm-hmm. The viral diseases are super spooky for me just because of how quickly they can be transmitted and, and how little we understand about them right now. And then the the final one we've jumped over into is an actual um, an allergy. 
And so the red meat allergy right. seems to be that exposure to Lone Star ticks may prime the immune system to react to, to meat. And so what it reacts to is um, a carbohydrate that's found in all mammals except for humans and old world primates. And so we wouldn't have the dog uh, the dog would not ever develop an allergy because it has that carbohydrate. Humans don't. And usually when we eat meat, our body just digests it and, you know, the immune system in our GI says, whatever, this is just meat, send it on through. But when we're sensitized um, to that specific carbohydrate through our skin, then it really ramps the whole immune system up to recognize it everywhere else. And they've actually found that um, it has to do something with tick feeding because they can't just inject that carbohydrate and cause the allergic reaction to develop up. Um, they have to do tick feeding. And so it's really a weird, complex thing because now your body is primed and when you eat red meat, your body says, hey, I know what this is. This is something bad from a tick, so let's have a big reaction. And people are having anaphylactic reactions like, you know, four hours after having a good steak dinner. Wow. And so, yeah. you know, and here in Kansas, I'll sometimes joke and say, yeah, we have Rocky Mountain spotted fever. It's a, it's a disease. It's fatal in humans if not treated. And, and then there's also this disease where you, you live, but you can't ever have red meat again. And, and the hunters will say, yeah, just go ahead and kill me. You know, if I, <laughs> if I can't have that red meat. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the other one. Uh-huh weird yeah this is like i know this one like also kind of made headlines you know a couple years ago or something like this this or maybe even it was more recent than that but so is there is there numbers on this one yet like how how many people do we know how many people have or are suspected to have had this reaction occur um i i don't think we have a good idea on numbers Mm -hmm. because um, it just, there, there's a lot of people that had low level diverticulitis for years. And then once they found this alpha gal thing out, you know, they're like, Oh, you know, let's go ahead and test you for that. And, and they're, they have it. And they've just mm. been dealing with this, you know, diverticulitis for half their life or, or whatever it is. And so, um, there seems to be a pattern that overlaps Lone Star ticks. But again, there's people who don't report ever having tick exposure um, that, to their knowledge that also develop this up. So how right. are they how are they getting exposed as well? So I, I don't think we have a good feel. We the the medical community does have a a, a good um, diagnostic assay. So they can detect it and then they're working on sensitization so you can step people back down um to eventually have a life of red meat again but um right now i think their number of cases are are growing and they're just trying to learn more and more about it Mm -hmm. is there a certain air like is there a certain region that this would occur like what it's it's a particular tick right yeah in in the u.s it's uh, Lone Star Tick, so that's kind of south, southeast, 
um, mm-hmm. to Tennessee, Virginia, but that ticks moved all the way up to Maine. And so I mean, we're seeing cases all over. Um, it's actually a worldwide phenomenon. It's a different tick in, in each area, but it's been described in Europe. It's been described in Australia as well. And so um, it's kind of goes to the, the idea that there's, there's ticks everywhere and, and they transmit a lot of terrible things everywhere. Um, just in general, just a nuisance. Right. Yeah. That's so crazy. And I mean, like the, the diagnostic thing, you know, teasing it out, like, you know, diverticulitis, that's just like a, that's a gut, like you kind of have like a scent, like IBD similar kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, and, the initial cases, you know, they report were hard to diagnose because people were having anaphylactic reactions at midnight, you know, and it's a delayed onset anaphylactic reaction. You eat your steak dinner at 6 p.m. and everything's good and you go home and you shower and you head to bed and you wake up in the night and you're feeling dizzy and you look at yourself in the bathroom mirror and you black out, you know, type yeah. of things. And so it was hard to associate one-to-one because they would go, well, you know, what what did you do right before uh, you felt dizzy? And I was like, well, I put on my face, my, my face, facial cream for the night. And I was like, okay, well, we'll see if it was that. And then, oh, you know, I had a, a, a beer. Okay, we'll see if it's that. And, you know, stepping all the way back down to what did you have at dinner? Mm-hmm. six hours before you blacked out right and and so i think the initial finding was pretty challenging just because of the delay on it too right and then if you like you said like if you already have like some kind of a stomach issue you know and you start to have you know it's it would you wouldn't necessarily jump right to oh you got this weird meat allergy from a tick yep exactly <laughs> So the end. The other interesting thing to me about this one is that it's something to do with the tick feeding, right? Like that you couldn't just get this, be exposed to this carbohydrate, and then you know develop the allergy. So there's some sort of. Do you would you su- suspect that it's like the immune system is coupling the two? Like it's it's noticing you know tick saliva or something like that, and and then along with this carbohydrate, and then it's sort of the immune system associates the two. I know this is like similar to people who have um, like type one diabetes. They think that you can, you know, basically you can, your immune system can see one thing and then it's closely looks like another thing. And so it makes this association and then starts like attacking your pancreas or something. You figure it's maybe something along the same lines or still too early to, to even know. So I would say too early to, exactly no but i would definitely guess that it has something to do with the linkages one of the you know many things that make ticks very cool is its saliva and they make all kinds of different saliva they actually they don't take in uh water they make a special kind of spit that wicks water from the air what yeah, so they make, <laughs> yeah, they they do weird things. They also make really specialized spit for when they're feeding. And that has anticoagulants in it, has anti-inflammatories in it. Um and so there's just a, a wide variety of proteins that are expressed during feeding. 
So you have this big macroscopic thing. Their their mouth parts are stuck into the skin, which would be similar to getting like a splinter. And right. so the immune system should be recognizing that and saying, oh, my God, you have something big in your you know skin. But because of their um, ability to express these proteins, they can really downregulate that immune response. Um, definitely plays a role in transmitting pathogens, but then also could play a role in this as well. Because then when you remove that tick, you remove the constant source of immunoregulators. And now mm-hmm. your body's like, oh, man. That's bad. So if you've ever noticed, you pull a tick and then you get a big red bump afterwards because if you let them stay on, they'll keep immunosuppressing that local area and it won't be as much of a reaction usually. But once it's gone, then the immune system's like, hey, do you guys know there's a bunch of proteins in here that aren't supposed to be here? We should go <laughs> clean that up. And and you get a big reaction. And so it easily could be that combination of you know, when the tick's removed, the immune system says, hey, let's go in and clean this up and, and let's also recognize that any of these proteins that are left over in here, they're from, a, they're from a tick or something weird. And so we should remember that and attack it next time, you know. Right. E- easily could see that there's a, a combination role there. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. So now you've got me fascinated by ticks a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so the... They have like the like spe- like is this across most tick species they can make this specialized spit or it's like each species kind of has its own unique spit that it that it does that it makes. Each species definitely has its own spit of you know jumble of things that it needs to live, but they all do very similar things in that they need to. Uh, not dehydrate and that's one of the big things they they dehydrate pretty easily mm-hmm. if out in just the sunshine and so they usually try to stay a little bit protected and then they're act they actually wick in moisture from a high hydroscopic fluid that's on their mouth parts so that's uh-huh. one of the that's one of the tick spits <laughs> and then they have tick spit for when they're feeding and we know that they express a variety of different proteins from early feeding to late feeding that changes and so cool tick spit there that has all these immunoregulators and anticoagulants and things like that and then um, they make a another tick spit um, for when they're reproducing they'll kind of coat their eggs with this uh, the females will coat, coat eggs um, give them a kind of a sticky outer component. So they make a lot of weird things um, that that's just tick spit and it's multifunctional. Very versatile saliva. You know, when you only have like a, a set number of uh, organs and a set number of, you know, processes, you got to really maximize that and, and multitask them. <laughs> no doubt. Well, maybe this is a good time then. Like, what's the the life cycle of ticks? Like, it's pretty common. There's got to be some variations across species, right? But, like, what's a general tick life cycle? And then when are you, when are they looking to get on, like, you or your dog or something like this? Yeah. Um. So they have a basically incomplete 
metamorphosis. They're laid as eggs. They hatch out as little larvae. The larvae are tiny. Think about that poppy seed muffin again. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have six legs. They'll feed on something small usually. So mice, whatever um, is around. After taking that blood meal, which is probably three days long-ish, they'll drop off that host um, and molt. And so if you're thinking like a snake shedding its skin or whatever, they they molt. And so they form a whole new next stage, a nymph. They'll come out of that molt casing, and they're a nymph, and they're hungry. They're looking for another host. So they'll feed on something as a nymph, drop off again, um, and molts again to adults. Then we have our male and female adults that feed and reproduce and lay eggs. Um, when, when would we see them? The smaller, the larvae are mainly feeding on rodents or birds. Um, so we don't really see those except for when you accidentally walk through a patch of them. Mm-hmm. That egg, You can imagine if 2,000 to 7,000 eggs are laid all at once, they don't really move that far. And so if you happen to step in that one horrible spot, you can get like 1,000 of them on you at one time, um, which is uh, completely disgusting. <laughs> but then the, the nymphs and the adults uh, happily will feed usually on, on uh, humans and our pets. And, and that's pretty a, a general um, – there's some – that stay on host all the time instead of dropping off. There's some that are very species specific that only feed on rabbits. And there's some that'll feed on anything that walks by. And so there's a lot of variations to fill different niches. Um, but basically usually about a three year life cycle total. Hmm. Okay. And so then like the, let's say the the adult that gets on you or your dog or something like this, um, it's going to like lay eggs. It can lay eggs basically reproduce multiple times. It's not like they, you know, lay their eggs and then die. We, we, there's kind of two different groupings. The, the ticks that everyone's thinking of are, are called hard ticks and they actually only, um, reproduce one time. And so when you see a big gray tick, that's just an adult female that has taken what that last big sip of blood to get enough nutrients to lay those two to 7,000 eggs. And then she'll die after she lays those eggs. We have some soft ticks and they're more common in birds. Sometimes we see them, you know, feeding on humans, but they're not really on hosts that much. They'll feed for like five minutes and they'll go back and hide uh, somewhere and, and they'll lay multiple rounds of eggs but really the ones that we're thinking about that everyone thinks about when they picture a tick they only um they only really feel feed one big time the females do and then they die the males can feed a few times and try to find different females to mate and kind of jump around a little bit but the females it's that one big sip and then and then they die mm. so like a soft tick then would be kind of more like a mosquito where it's going back and forth to eating blood, going, getting off, that kind of thing? Yeah, they're, they're, 
evolutionarily they're nest parasites and so they're protected in the environment of the nest and so they basically hide out in the nest or the cracks in the walls or whatever it is they come out at nighttime or when everyone's calm they'll feed a little bit and they'll go back and hide and so they've filled a niche of we have a protected environment and so all we need to do is get our little blood meal and lay some eggs and, and move on whereas the hard ticks are you know, free outside, you know, in the environment. Um, and so if a deer runs by and you attach on, you better get your full meal and, and do everything because who knows when a deer is going to run through this specific part of the woods again. Right. And so that's why they kind of separately evolved very nicely to different scenarios. Right. So like a soft tick, then I'm, I'm thinking more like a bed bug kind of thing too. Yeah, uh, that's. I think that's a, a pretty good comparison. And they, they hop on, they feed for a little while, and then they go hide because right. they know there's safety. Right. So then my next question, these hard ticks, the one that everyone's thinking about and that you would get you know, while hiking or something like that, they are in this kind of dire situation that it's like if they're just – because they don't move very – they don't – like they're not cruising around, walking around all the time looking for hosts. It's really – whatever happens to come by. So what, how do they, you know, how do they detect hosts? How do they get on? Um, they're not like fleas where they're jumping, correct? No, they, they, they don't jump. They don't fly. Um, they usually quest. And so they'll go onto grass or kind of whatever they can kind of cling on to and quest which is basically holding their front arms up and waiting for a host to come by and they tend to quest at the level of their their host they're looking for and so um, a lot of the adults uh, a great um, resource for adult ticks are deer and so they're questing you know about hip height you know for average human because deer running running by that would be a good spot for them to cling on to deer as well mm-hmm and that front set of legs, they tend to use them more like antenna than actually legs because they have these uh, sensory organs in their front feet, basically, called Haler's organs that can sense a wide variety of different things. And, and some are pretty basic, rudimentary, um, but there's some that are more hunting ticks, like the Lone Star tick in, in the U.S., that they can actually sense carbon dioxide, and they will actively try to go towards that source of carbon dioxide. Getting that, if they're sensing it and they're going towards the gradient, that may be an animal that's exhaling, and they can kind of go towards where that is. Mm-hmm. So, like when we trap them, we'll sometimes put dry ice out and let them come to us. Uh, in a in a you know they sense it and they go towards that carbon dioxide source right uh interesting so this is like because i think i've seen pictures of this this questing behavior they're basically they climb up the plants and then they put their their legs their legs out so they're doing some kind of sensing stuff but they're also basically just waiting for you to brush against it and then they just grab on yeah they they just latch on they they don't jump out. We actually did a pretty good video of a questing tick 
that's reaching out and we put our finger just outside of her reach and she's swinging her arms and trying to get there and at no <laughs> and at no point does she jump she has no ability to jump it's literally a millimeter away and she can't get to it because she has no jumping ability she's hanging on and trying to just as soon as her claw hits that finger though she hooks on and, and then gets onto the finger really quickly. And so right. they really just latch on. And, and when people find them in their hair and stuff, they say, oh, it's it's jumped out of trees. It's fallen out of trees. No, bad news. You walked through them. It may have gotten on you about hip height or maybe a little bit higher, and it crawled up and hid in your hair. Yeah. They're, fa- they're fast and sneaky. And so it it wasn't that it jumped out of the tree. It's Around the tree is where maybe deer like to lay, and so there's ticks around that tree. It cr- crawled up your body and onto your head. Ugh. And yeah, that grosses people a... out more to like think about that than, than to go with, oh, it must have just jumped out of the tree and landed on my head. It's like, nope, it's been all over your body already. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a much creepier, creepier thought. Um I want to. I just realized that I didn't. I mentioned this Twitter thread of yours that I saw, but then we never actually discussed it. And this was pretty interesting. And maybe I'll let you uh, explain what it was you were tweeting about, like the article that you saw that you then felt you needed to uh, to comment on. You know the one I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I, this one, you'll see. My my Twitter is is pretty sparse because I do have a fear of saying the wrong thing and then you know not enough people will like it and my ego will be shattered or (laughs) even worse i'll say something bad and then people will say either correct me because i'm actually wrong which you know my ego can't handle that either or you know it'll start a big battle that i don't want to deal with and so i tend not to i don't have many posts and I love science communication. I just can't get over my, that fear. But this mm-hmm. one pushed me over that edge. Um, there was a uh, U.S. politician who wanted to add funding to look into the idea that the U.S. government released Lyme disease as a chemical warfare tactic that they were testing out. Right. And um, it's just a massive waste of, of taxpayer money and time. Um, knowing that they're cutting budgets for research all the time and then they're going to give money to look into this, that could have been someone's grant that you know finds the new vaccine or a better diagnostic test, who knows, and, and they're using it for this. So I just it pushed me over the edge, and I started off by saying, you know, this is silly, it's a waste of time. The, the government has tested things on people. We know um, there's a lot of horrific um, examples of that, even in the tick-borne disease world, but um, there, there's a lot of repeated things. So I don't want to give the U.S. government a, an easy out and say, oh, no, they, these sweet angels, they wouldn't do that. They would, <laughs> but they they didn't, likely. Um, and then I, I went to my running club, and I uh, had my – short run and a few beers and that gave me the courage to come back and say, you know what? No, I'm going to address this like right here, right now and talk about the ecology. Because again, that's another kind of goes back to the start is it's a super complex issue. And, and the idea that we can talk about all the reasons why a disease is where it's at is, is really hard to 
distilled down for the public. And so I just started off by saying, hey, did you know that the forested area in New York, there was more forested area in 2000 or even close, you know, now, um, more forested area in New York now than in the 1800s because the first thing they did was clear cut all the land so they could farm it and build homes. Mm-hmm. And and we think, well, you know, New York is a bustling city. It's using a ton of resources. I I bet it has no trees, but there's a you know a lot of forested areas there that have now been rebuilt because they're not doing as much farming in those areas. And so um, we're just now getting back to 1800s level of forest in New York. And then to dovetail with that, the U.S almost completely eradicated white-tailed deer. And then something that people don't think of now because um, in areas where you see white-tailed deer like Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, you see them everywhere. You know, lots of them on the side of the road um, hit. Uh, Some of the northern states say that there's, they don't have enough hunters that want to get permits to, to hunt deer to actually control the population anymore. They've reached that critical limit where without without doing something themselves, they wouldn't be able to keep the population stable. It would just keep expanding because there's not enough hunters that want to, to do that anymore. So it's mm-hmm. a deer a problem now. And no one can imagine the idea that there was a time when there was almost zero white-tailed deer. And so there was reports of the very last white-tailed deer in, in Georgia. And it's like, how does that even happen? They were feeding a growing nation. They were just killing everything. And so you've removed the forested areas and the major reproductive host, the, the deer. That's where the, the male and female ticks get the majority of their blood meal is, is, on, is on those deer. And so you removed the environment that makes them happy, trees, that leaf litter cover, turn it into farms where there's, they're drying out and dying. You removed their host and their their food source, and it's no wonder that it went away, and we didn't really know what was happening. And so then, as the deer came back and the forest came back, and our ability to diagnose diseases got better, then they recognized Lyme disease, and so poof, there it was. And then the next claim was like, well, yeah, but. It started in a really central area, and then it moved outwards and outwards and outwards, and so it had to be a point introduction. Mm-hmm. And that's a, just a, a big problem in how disease surveillance is done usually. Um, like right now, I have a, a small grant to study uh, a parasitic disease called Chagas disease in Manhattan, Kansas. And so I'm studying right here in, in Manhattan, looking for it in raccoons and things. Um, and then if I get cool results, then maybe I'll look at all of Kansas. And if I get cool results with that, maybe I'll get some funding to study it more regionally. But that absolutely does not mean that K-State released Chagas disease. <laughs> right, it's just yeah. that's where my money could go. And, and that's kind of how this was, where they diagnosed the patient zero. And they said, hey, you know what? This this kid's sick. And there's also some kids in town that are experiencing similar things. Let's test them. And then okay, well, so now there's some kids in the neighboring towns. Um, let's test them. And so it kind of, it did work its way outwards, but it, it's not, has nothing to do with an introduction of the disease. It's just how we could surveil the disease or, or set up a surveillance s- system. 
Right. It's just you're just following the clues. Right. Yeah. And then it, it's of course, it's going to look linear or like it's spreading out from one thing when you when that's just the way you're looking at it. Um, so you're going to go on the record and say, although the government would do crazy experiment things, you don't think that this is a case of that at all. Yeah, I think in this case, it's it's a no. Um, but again, the government definitely would uh, <laughs> do testing. Um, it seems their testing has been more direct at, at this point rather than just to drop some ticks out in the woods. Um, but, you know, yeah. I, I have a general distrust of the government anyway, but even with that, I, I uh, don't think they're involved in this one. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I was actually really surprised when I saw this, because, I mean, this the article that you were referencing uh, and that sort of sent you on the path to do a, what I thought was a really great Twitter thread, actually, too, um, was in Gizmodo, which is like, you know, pretty pretty popular, you know, science, science-y news um, publication. But there's also a, uh, a book that was just written by a journalist that's alleging the same thing. And I was looking at, you know, a, I think it was Stat, Stat News, which is a, another medical news publication, uh, science, you know, magazine. Uh, and they had their book list, like summer, great summer science nonfiction books to read. And there's this book in there that's, yeah, written by a journalist that's alleging this the same thing, that Lyme disease started as some kind of bio-warfare, bio-weapon that the government made. They made this crazy bacteria, and they were their plan was put it in ticks and we'll release the ticks, you know, against their enemies and all this stuff, and then it escaped the lab. And it's like, I've just, like, I've not read the book. Um, I don't even remember the title. We, we won't promote the title of it. But yeah. just in listening to, like, you know, you talk about mm -hmm. it and, you know, a few other sort of interviews and whatnot that I've seen kind of surrounding it, it's like there's no direct evidence whatsoever for this. And this person who made this book is just like, even I think there's quotes of them saying, you know, like, I don't really have the direct evidence, but there's a bunch of things that make me think. And it's just like, you're just like, really? Like, we got bigger problems. I love the, I think in, in your, your, your Twitter thread there, you said something like, it's like, it's like looking for Sasquatch when you know there's a serial killer on the loose. Like, what, what are we doing here? Yeah, and, and I think there's actually direct evidence that it, it wasn't the government. You know, we, we have museum samples from the 1800s of mice that are the reservoir for the bacteria. So white-footed mouse, uh, paramiscus leucopus, and they were positive in the 1800s. And right. so uh, then the bacteria or similar bacteria um, are found worldwide. So we have multiple introductions with different tick vectors so not even the same tick throughout the world um, is is a pretty big stretch, and and I think if if you're looking to tag the government as the evil overlords and and address <laughs> some of the wrongs they've done, your your time is much better spent in in looking up and researching and 
trying to figure out ways to repair the damage they have done for some of some pretty gross things like the Tuskegee experiment or mm-hmm. uh, the testing they did do on pacifists and Seventh Day Advent advocates Adventists, where they put them in basically a little igloo and they injected it with different concentrations of bacteria and they said, oh, yep, um, the minimum infectious dose is five. You know, they they all yeah. got sick in this little igloo. And so there is some damage that's been done and, and that does get hidden. And if journalists are interested in digging up things and, you know, learning about those and, and reporting those more widely is a much more valuable resource as we try to come to terms with what the government has done in the in the past and and how they should atone for for some of those and i you know i recently listened to more kind of uh, a small small podcast and then a an audiobook on the tuskegee experiments and i had no idea how long they went on for and how devastating they were and um you know basically with no um consequences and, and so i think there are times when wrongs have been committed and, and people are utilizing these resources completely incorrectly and following this lyme disease thing when um getting the word out about some of the stuff that has happened and how we can move forward from those would be much better right yeah, yeah. i mean this you know goes with all of the the, the trend of conspiracy theories at the moment, you know, whether it's vaccine stuff or, you know, pick one, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. So if we want to start our own conspiracy theory right here, I'm going to throw out that the story of the ticks being a government thing is really the government trying to mislead us and keep us distracted because yeah. they are doing so <laughs> I, I did I did hear a um a podcast um and, and they mentioned the ethical you know concerns of doing this but they were talking to an anti-vax person and the anti-vax person said it's the government that's trying to control us and and they're you know I don't want to inject this into me because then they'll be able to track me or it it you know numbs my brain or whatever it is and and the the um the doctor kind of said oh yeah yeah that's what the russians want you to think they they <laughs> they want you to think that so you don't vaccinate your kids and so that we have unhealthy kids you know that die early so our population is weaker and then they could take us over and the parent said oh man you know, I hadn't even thought about it like that. I think I want to vaccinate my kid now. It's like <laughs> there's an eth- ethical dilemma into tricking them, but you know, how do we talk on the level of a conspiracy theorist? It's like with conspiracies. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you got to treat one with the other. And no, but I mean, that's like that just shows the the sort of the rabbit hole that you can get into when you're, you know. And I mean, I guess this is this could be. You know, it goes kind of goes back to the delusional parasite thing. It's like you're maybe you have some other trauma or unresolved thing in your life that you are using conspiracy theories or your uh, the delusional parasite thing. You know that you're, but there's no answer that will ever be good enough. Like you could, like you can make anything can become a symptom. Anything can become a government plot. Like it's, it's just a weird way of viewing the world that I don't understand. It's kind of fascinating to watch unfold, but also incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I think people in general 
want they they want to be told that they're doing the right thing, but they want to be told they're doing the right thing whenever they're doing whatever they want to. And I I always <laughs> joke even in vet med that I have um you know, a lot of veterinarians they want uh not a formula, but they they're looking for advice and you know if a tick's attached, what do I do next? And, you know, kind of a, a stepladder of here's some things to do. And they, they want some concrete information. And I, and so I can't just go out and say, Oh, you know, just do whatever you want to. And they, they want some real factual things they should do. But then when I tell them those things, okay, well, you know, I would do a, B and C if they're, if that's not what they do, then the next response is, well, I can't do that. Or, you know, well, well, <laughs> well we do this. Is, is this okay too? And so it's that, it's probably a human nature thing where you, we, we, you know, we, we want some structure, but we also want to be told that what we're doing is the correct thing. And so then looking outside of that or, you know, fielding outside opinions is really tough to do. And, I would put myself on that block as well. You know, I don't communicate on Twitter that much because I'm afraid that someone's going to call me out and say, no, you're wrong. And then I have to come to grips that, you know, I'm incorrect and I need to fix that deficit by learning more things. You mm-hmm. know? And so I think we're all fall prey to that. It's just what, what level, you know, how far down the rabbit hole are we? Right. Yeah, when and how how willing are you to course correct or self reflect yeah. and and that kind of thing? And I I appreciate your honesty and feel like I don't want to put my my thoughts out there because if I am wrong, then I'm gonna have to. <laughs> you then know. you have to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I think about you know me doing this podcast, and I'm just like I'm usually assuming that I'm wrong about most things, and I'm still out here just blabbing away about it. Maybe I maybe I should. Uh, take a page from your book and tone it down but then i wouldn't have the listeners wouldn't have all this great content you know yeah and i think you know everyone has their their level of comfort i think you are in the realm of trying to make sense of chaotic things in the world and science and you know being as thoughtful and candid as you can and not espousing hardcore you know, beliefs or, or anything like that, that could radically change things. You're just like, Oh, you know, this seems reasonable that based on the evidence. And I think, you know, if more people had that time to self reflect and say, Oh, that, that sounds interesting. You know, maybe I should try it that way. Or how do we incorporate that self reflecting in our education so that they are doing that or learn how to do that. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, like critical thinking or self-reflection or something. Like it's almost like these are skills that you sort of have to learn, right? Like no one's really that good at it. And like I think I agree with what you were saying too, that it's probably kind of just a bit of human nature that we sort of have to fight against this idea of like I don't want to be wrong or I want to, you know, know that what I'm doing is right. Uh, so, yeah, maybe this is something. I mean, I don't know. We, I wasn't really expecting the conversation to go down that way, but it's it's interesting and uh, I don't know, what do you think, how do you feel when you're, because are you teaching undergrads at the moment? I teach veterinary students. Ah, okay. Um, and so I teach in the second year 
Um, they've made it through a, a really difficult first year. And we have to remember that vet students are, they're extremely, extremely good at course learning. They're mm-hmm. incredible. The, the amount of information that they can handle and, and process and um, you can make fun of it for memorize, regurgitate, but they're good at it, right? And they, they're learning along the way. But one of the things that they're not good at is being wrong. They're, mm-hmm. they're, used, they're used to making good grades and they're, and they're used to being right a lot and knowing things. And it, it's hard to make it a safe space where you say, hey, I want to ask a bunch of questions in here. And personally, me, I don't actually care if you're right or wrong. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to have you think about it. And then when you say what you think's right, then we'll talk about um, how that fits in and, and and what the correct answer would be. But I personally don't care, but it freaks them out. And I get all kinds of student evaluations. They're like, I am so nervous in your class because you ask four questions in in the middle of a 50-minute lecture. Uh, I can't even think. I can't, I can't learn. My brain is shut down because I'm so scared. And I really think you're so scared of not answering a question wrong for no points with no animal's life on the line in front of me and some other people in the class that probably are going to get it wrong too. You know, what's your level of scare when if you get it wrong, there's a dead animal involved or, mm-hmm. you know, there's higher consequence. What's if you're wrong in front of the patient uh, or the, I mean the client. And so just trying to normalize the idea that we are wrong and just think about, you know, why did why did we answer that? What were you thinking when you answered that? Oh, it was just a guess. Okay, cool. Or, oh, I thought it was this disease because it had A, B, and C. And it's like, yeah, you're right. It did have A, B, and C. It was lacking some of these other features. So that's why the correct answer is something else. And so just trying to have self-reflection so that being wrong is not a, a big issue. Right. Well, and this is like, I mean, I imagine that there's probably similar attitudes or you know feelings in this in this regard with like veterinary students and medical students and it's like well we should really yeah like the focus should be not on these kids that are going out and then going to be you know dealing with these stressful situations and whether it's with animals or or people having a little more you know humility and understanding but also like for their own sake right like like you said like if they're so anxious that they can't get things wrong or something like that. You're not going to be able to perform your job very well. But um, do you think that like it's a symptom, like a new symptom, like a vet, has veterinary students always been this way? Cause you get, you hear a lot about like the younger generation and how they're, you know, super anxious and crazy and can't be wrong and have never been told they're wrong. And you know, all this stuff, like, do you see that a lot? Like, do you think that's a problem or is this something that just, all old people and as we get older we're going to continue to look at the younger generations and be like oh my god they're terrible yeah i I think some of it is um just older generations not understanding how to connect um i think some of those soft skills are trying to be reincorporated from the beginning of like kindergarten, how do you do self-reflection? How do you 
teach compassion, you know, early on in school versus a standardized learning of like reading, writing and some math. Um, so starting from the base, but I, I would agree that this generation and future, it, it's not getting less stressful because these students are making a decision as high schoolers that they want to do some kind of professional school. Or at least they know that if they don't excel, then there's less doorways open for them. And so coming out of high school as a C student, man, right, you've got a long road. And and, and there's people who are successful all the time. And I, I don't know that tests and grades are the great indicator of success, but I do know that there's lots of cutoffs that are set. And so then you really have to battle upstream if you fall behind. And so we see a lot of students who, you know, freshmen in college, they failed a few courses and their GPA is lower because freshman year, they just weren't ready to buckle down, but their GPA is nowhere near some of the other candidates we're letting in because it's how else do we parse them apart? And so we're asking students to be very, very high functioning, score good, you know, in classes, volunteer, work at vet clinics, um, take leadership roles in, in organizations. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that they have to get right to get, to get into a vet school. So there's a ton of stress put in. And then you add in the financial burden where, man, if you mess around and you don't get a degree out of this, then you're $200,000 in debt with no way of paying that back. So, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of stress that just is there, but I, I think also trying to start early with students and to, to talk about questioning critical thinking and how do we incorporate that into elementary school, high school, all the way up through. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you're coming out with a very thoughtful answer. You know, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm glad that you're the guy in there doing this. Um, <laughs> I don't think my students like it. I think, <laughs> I, I think I'm specifically torturing them. But <laughs> Well, you're there to be their teacher, not their friend, right? So <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, well, this is, I mean, this has been a great conversation. I'm really loving it. I think we should do this again. But before I let you go, I've gotten your information, your expertise on science communication, on ticks, on tick diseases, now on educational philosophy. I have to ask about your expertise in the cocktail game. I know you're a big fan of cocktails. What, like, what are you working on? What's your favorite? Where did this all come about? Like, is it just, you've always just enjoyed this? Because I see some of the concoctions that you make, so. Yeah, I, I don't know where it came, came from, but um, I really just like to play around with them and, and try different flavors. And I, I didn't have, I don't think it's going to make much sense, um, because I spent a lot of money on ingredients anyway, but I, you know, I didn't, <laughs> in my mind, I didn't have money for a really expensive bottle of whatever the alcohol was, but I could take a mid-priced one and make a really good cocktail with it 
just by changing the flavors and, and adding things to it. And so then I didn't have to have a $200 bottle of whiskey. I could get a $20 bottle of whiskey and then, you know, $15 worth of ingredients and I can make some really awesome cocktails. And so um, I love playing around with that. Still do. I make a lot of bitters, um, which are like flavorings for cocktails. So right now, the the bitters that's going on right now is lime and hibiscus. Um, mm-hmm. So it's good for like margaritas, kind of lighter drinks, still feeling that summertime vibe. I'm a seasonal cocktail maker, drinker, and so I'll switch over to fall, like cinnamon, uh, earthy cocktails, warmer cocktails, right, right. Uh, heartier cocktails here soon. Um, but my favorite thing to do is just to take the old fashioned and then just make all kinds of different versions of an old fashioned. It's such a classic cocktail, um, minimal ingredients, and you can do a lot with just adding different flavors to it. So what's the basis of an old fashioned? So really just, um, whiskey and some simple syrup, some places, then it's like variations on a theme some people like orange um in there um some people like cherries muddled in the bottom um bitters are added usually and so um it's just kind of a basically a way to tone down the whiskey with a little bit of a sugar and then uh orange maybe bring some citrus flavor to it or kind of ease out some of that sugar but then you can change all different versions. Uh, my favorite version to date is um, I made a coffee pecan bitters. I made um, a basically pecan maple syrup, simple syrup, and then a coffee whiskey. And it was like a breakfast cocktail. So, um, or think uh, think pecan pie and coffee like as a dessert type of thing it was problematically good and i haven't made it in two years because it was just (laughs) it was too good i i joked with my partner that i i said this is how i could accidentally start drinking for breakfast every day and she was like accidentally and i was like that's just so good you know i didn't mean to (laughs) um and so then it it went off rotation for a year or so but i I think i'm going to bring it back this winter um it's just Probably one of my favorite versions of the old-fashioned I've ever made. Nice, nice. I imagine that this is one thing, too, that if you put this up on Twitter, you're going to create, you know, even a bigger storm than you would have saying something about vaccines because you're going to get all the cocktail purists coming. You can't put pecan. That's, oh, my God. Uh-huh. You know, It's like pineapple on pizza, right? Like these are the things that people are really upset about. But I would appreciate it if you put some recipes up on Twitter. I would definitely like to give some of these a go. All right. Yeah, I'll try to move those over. Um, I'm always trying new things. I think we're into an era where two things are happening in the cocktail world. One, they're reviving old recipes from pre-prohibition. And two, just doing variations on a theme. And so, you know, what, what I'm doing falls into that. Uh, I follow a lot of people online that make cocktails, and then I say, you know what, that sounds good, but I don't, I don't have all the ingredients they have, but I do have these things. Would would that be a good cocktail too? So uh, just kind of variations on on a theme, and 
I think what I like about cocktails right now is everyone's riffing all kinds of different things. And, and there are some purists on how an, the original one was made back in whenever, but so many people are trying all kinds of new things. It's really fun. Yeah, it's kind of like the craft beer world. It's going crazy right now. Everybody's just trying new things. But, hey, man, it's sweet, and everybody's got to have a hobby, right? Yeah, exactly. You can't be out hunting ticks all all year. <laughs> yeah, no. It's got to gotta have some kind of uh, out, you know, way to get relaxed and unwind. All right. All right, man. Well, I'll let you go. Maybe I'll enjoy a cocktail here in Germany. It's cocktail hour for me. I think you've got a couple hours yet to go where you are, but is yeah, there... Saturday. You can start early. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Is there any, like, uh, you know, parting words, maybe advice for pet owners, for people avoiding ticks, what to do with a tick? Do you have a website that you, you know, for your research or something, your Twitter, if you want to throw out anything like that? go for it let people know where to get some information yeah for 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 ticks um and your pets i'm on team every pet needs to be on an, an effective preventive every month uh, all year round the the tick that transmits lyme disease it's the adult one's going to be peaking here in october and november we find it all through the winter I mean, everyone thinks that ticks are a summertime issue. They think, oh, mosquitoes and, and things, and, and ticks are out as well. Ticks are actually a year-round issue, and so I'm all about um, protecting yourself year-round. So doing tick checks when you're out in the woods, um, using a preventive, trying to just make reasonable um, precautions to protect yourself and your and your pet. So I'm all about the year-round protection. Um in fact, the study that I have going right now is an equine tick study. Um, and the, the website's just equineticks.org. And we've received a s- sample submission once a week since last October. Um, made it all the way through the winter, everything. We got ticks, at least one tick every week since I started last October. Wow. So really, it really is a year-round thing. And, and I think that's where people get into trouble is they they think about it in the summertime and then they may kind of lapse on it in their fall hiking or or whatever and it's still a risk for sure right all right so check yourself you know get your pets on something those are really just kind of common sense do what you can sort of uh pieces of advice yeah and uh yeah we won't put your email out there so that like to solicit a bunch of people that think they might have some kind of crazy disease. I won't do that to you. But if you want to tell people your Twitter, we can do that maybe. Yeah, I uh, I have been using my Twitter more and more. I'm really using it as a uh, as the science social media for me. Um, whereas like my Instagram was more cocktails and personal life. But my uh, my Twitter handle is just Brian Heron 24. Yeah. All right. Cool. And well, man, it's mainly going to be science unless you, uh, super persuade me that you need a few cocktail recipes. I may, I may push a few over there just to, <laughs> uh, just to help you out a little bit. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'll, I could get in touch, uh, offline 
and get you get some cocktail recipes but <laughs> i just want to say thanks for yeah thanks for taking the time thanks for the chat it was really great um if you're if you're down to it we should uh, we should do it again that sounds great i, I always love catching up with you it was, it was fun chat so anytime you want to chat i'm happy to right on dude There you have it. I hope you learned something about ticks, Lyme disease, what to do when you're out hiking to avoid ticks and Lyme disease. Again, many thanks to Brian. Uh, it was just a blast catching up with him and some really great uh, info in that conversation. Hopefully we will do it again. Uh, please do remember to check out featherposter.com. Use the promo code, promo code 2BRAD, T-W-O-B-R-A-D, all one word. Uh, if you do end up uh, getting a poster, um what else follow us on twitter at two grad for you uh that's also the instagram handle you can check me out on twitter at b van um and then wherever you're getting the show uh rate us leave us a comment um get in touch if you if there's something you want us to cover we will try and do that um so yeah rating and commenting gives us a boost so we appreciate it um subscribe that also helps and it means you don't miss a show so there you go and you don't want to miss a show because i got a really great uh, set of episodes coming up um and we got a real push now to get more of these conversations going so thank you all for listening we appreciate it from myself and british brad and tabby bruce pad podcast mascot tabby bruce Uh, check him out on instagram he's adorable we appreciate it uh thank you for listening thank you to the freak motif uh, for the use of the music and to sebastian for our lovely logo all right folks that's all i have check you later thanks again bye now